Good morning. It is good to see uh, new, well, not new faces, old faces again, and new ones. Um, as I mentioned in my prayer, uh, Anna Miriam Ewer is somewhere over here, so make sure that you uh, greet her. Almost all of our problems are relationship problems. Almost every problem that we have in this life has to do with how we relate to some person. When people come to another person in the church or when they come to one of the pastors or one of the elders for help, they have a problem, they want to come and talk about a problem. Nine times out of ten, almost always, it's a relationship problem. It has something to do with, with a mother or a father or a husband or a wife or a child or a brother or a sister or a co-worker or someone else in the church. It always has something to do with some kind of relationship. And that's the way it is with almost all of our problems. Sometimes it's a problem that you have with yourself. Um, have you ever heard someone say, you know, I just can't live with myself? Or, um, I, I, you know, I can't look in the mirror at myself after what I did. I mean, what's that all about? You're having interpersonal problems with yourself. <laughs> you know, you can't even live with yourself. All of our problems are relationship problems, either with someone else or with yourself. And in all of our problems, really, no matter what our problems are, there is always the person of God who's involved. If you get a flat tire, or if your business goes bad, if your husband leaves you, if you can't get along with your boss, if you have lost a baby, whatever it is, every single problem in your life has something to do with your relationship to God. How will you receive bad news this year? How will you receive the news that you have cancer? How will you receive the news that your wife is leaving you for another man? How will you receive just the inconvenience of the blown furnace or the flat tire or whatever it is that you're going to face this year? You will always deal with all of that stuff in relationship to God. You will receive it as someone who is in fellowship with God, who, who knows that God is your Father, that He's your provider, who has this felt relationship with God as a person that you know is good and wise and powerful and righteous, or you'll receive that news as someone who is in rebellion against God, who refuses to acknowledge that God is good and wise and powerful and loving and righteous, who's a father for you, who, who rebels against the thought of being under the authority and under the care of anyone. Every problem is a relationship problem and ultimately every problem is a theological problem. Everything has to do with relationships and everything has to do with God. That's the life that we live. That's the world we live in. And this chapter that we've read this morning already, Philippians chapter 2, is all about relationships. When we read Philippians 2, it's tempting to see one thing and one thing only and kind of glaze over, you know, have our eyes gloss over when we see the rest of it. It's tempting just to see that one part at the beginning, that wonderful part about Jesus Christ, where it talks about him, Jesus Christ, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is glorious, isn't it? It's great. But it's not the main point. That is not the main point of this chapter. The main point of all of that is not to give us theoretical, theological data to store away somewhere in our intellectual heads. The point of all of that truth is to make us good. More specifically, the point of all that truth is to make our relationships good. Our relationships here with one another good. Because the point of Philippians 2 is not some esoteric truth about Jesus. The point is living in close fellowship with sinners in the church, in this church. And I guarantee you, if all of us lived in obedience to God's commands in Philippians 2, most of our problems would melt away. Just think about it. If we lived in obedience to what God commands us in this chapter, what problem do you have right now wouldn't just go away? Or at least you would have the means to deal with it. This passage is about Christian relationships. Paul tells us what our relationship should look like in verses 2 through 4. Look at this with me. He says in verse 2, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, though with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now talk about beautiful relationships. Can you imagine what it would be like if our church, if, if we all obeyed these commands, can you imagine what it would be like in your home if we all obeyed these commands? What would that look like? God commands us here to be of the same mind, to think the same way, to have the same mindset about everything. God commands us to maintain the same love, to have, and not just to have it, but to keep it, to guard it, to maintain true brotherly love for one another. As he talks about in Ephesians 4, to bear with one another in love, to put up with one another, to bear with one another in love, have a deep, heartfelt care and concern for one another. He commands us to be united in spirit, to have a oneness of spirit, have a sense of camaraderie, a sense of belonging together, that we're in this together, to stand together as brothers and sisters who have the same father, who belong to the same family, to be united in spirit. He commands us to be intent on one purpose, to have a common goal and a common purpose for life, to live together for the glory of God, to be on God's mission together. This, this kind of mindset would change all kinds of things for our church and for our homes and for our churches if we were all about the same thing, if we all had the same purpose, that we saw that the big picture, the main goal, the thing that we were all trying to do together was actually the same thing. It was what God commanded us to do and called us to do. And we're all pushing and, and pulling and, and that motivates you to do all kinds of things. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but instead... With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Can you imagine what that would look like? To be free from pride. To stop being controlled by wanting people to like you and to esteem you and to think of you as something. To be more impressed with other people than you are with yourself. Can you imagine what that would look like? 
for you. He commands us to not merely look out for our own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Not just to be more impressed with other people than you are with yourself, to be more, but to be more concerned about other people than you are with yourself. Can you, I mean, we hear these words and they, they flood through our ears and spill out the other end. Can you really imagine what it would be like if you thought more highly of everyone else around you than you do yourself? What would your home look like? What would this church look like? What would your neighborhood look like? These are, the, are God's commands. These are the commands of God for our relationships. This is what God demands of us as we relate to one another and other people. And this is what our church should look like. A group of people who live together in genuine relationship with one another, who are of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Hold that up to yourself. The Bible says that it's like a mirror that we look at. We look at ourselves. We see ourselves in this mirror. Hold that mirror up for yourself. And and what do you see? Is that us? Is it you? Is it you individually? If you look around and think that this is not us, then you can't blame anyone else but yourself. If you can look at us as a group and say, well, no, that's not us, then you can't blame anyone but yourself. You can't look around and blame anyone else. You can't say, well, you know, if so-and-so was being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, then I would be too. But so-and-so isn't, so, you know. You can't uh, look around and say, if so-and-so would do nothing from from selfishness or from empty conceit, you know, if so-and-so would regard me as more important than himself, if so-and-so would obey this and regard me as more important than himself, if so-and-so would not merely look out for his own personal interests, but also for my interests, well, then maybe I'd be different too. You can't, you can't take this and turn it around. You have to turn it towards yourself. What about you? Don't look around and complain about anyone else in this church. Think about yourself. Is this you? This is the way our church should look, because these are the commands of God. These are the commands of God. We should be a group of people who don't see ourselves as individuals who come together to get our dose of religion every week. This church is not the equivalent of some live sermon tape that you can plug in and listen to. This is not just a place where you can come and download the sermon and walk away and plug in your earplug, earphones and listen to it on your iPod. This is not what this church is. It's not just about hearing words. This is a family. It's a family. It's a group of people that you have to deal with and live with. And if you come here just to hear a sermon and then you run out the door as soon as you've gotten what you came for, you have no understanding of the church at all. And there's no conceivable way that you could possibly be obeying these commands of God if you think of this church as a place where you come, sit down, sing some songs, if even you sing at all, hear a sermon and hit the door. That's not what church is, is it? 
Now, by the way, let me say something here, a um, little sideline. I want to say something about listening to sermons on the Internet or on tapes or on CDs. I think it's potentially destructive to your faith. Not so much just because it opens, up, opens you up to false teaching, although it can very much so open you up to false teaching, but because it inevitably gives you a false understanding of the church. You understand what I mean by that? Even if you're listening to sermons online about the true nature of the church, <laughs> even if you're listening to this sermon online about the true nature of the church, it gives you a false understanding of the church because it reduces the church to a preaching station, to a place where you come to plug in and hear the words that come out of the, of the speaker. It will always warp your understanding of what a sermon is for and what the church is for. You can listen to the sermon from this disembodied voice and not have to see the preacher afterwards, not have to smell the preacher afterwards, not have to live with the preacher afterwards, or deal with any of those nasty people on the way out. You just plop into the virtual church, get your fix, and you're gone. And that will inevitably change the way you think about what happens here on Sunday morning. It will, it will change your expectations. It will set up unrealistic and unbiblical expectations for you. So even if you're listening to this sermon right now, someone is listening to this sermon, will be listening to this sermon online right now, and I'm talking to them. Maybe they're in Montana. I don't know. Even if you're listening to this sermon online right now, Make sure that as soon as you are done, you start building relationships with real people in a real church. Make sure that you, who are sitting here in front of me, build relationships with real people in a real church. And whatever you do, don't sit in judgment of your pastors based on what you hear online. <laughs> you have the pastor's that you have. God has given you the men that are here. And God has not given you John Piper. He's not given you John MacArthur. He's not given you D. James Kennedy. He's not given you um, Stanley, whatever his first name is. He's given you us. Don't compare us with them. They're men too. And they're looking at their congregations and they would say the same thing. Now, end of parenthesis. Think about this question. What is it that keeps us from having these kinds of relationships that God commands of us in Philippians 2? What's it, what is it that keeps us from thinking better of others than we do ourselves, from having this unity of mind, having this unity of spirit, having this one purpose, maintaining this love? What is it that, that, that makes our relationships broken? What is it, what's the source of our relationship problems? Um, if you know me, and if I've talked to you at all about these kinds of things, you know where I'm going to go with this. All right. James chapter four. Right. Someone or all of you look at James chapter four real quick. I just want to read two verses. And James answers that very particular question. Why are our relationships messed up? Why are your relationships broken? Why are there conflicts? Why are you not living in uh, united in spirit and ten on the, on the same purpose? Um, maintaining the same love? Why are you not walking in humility with one another? Why are you fighting and quarreling? Look at what he says. James 4, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? 
It's a good question. Why do you fight? Why don't you get along with people? It is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. The source of the strife and the discord that destroys our relationships is that we want what we're not getting. That's what it is. You want something and you're not getting it. For example, I want to be encouraged. I want encouragement. But you're not encouraging me. I want the warmth and the security and the consolation of love. But you're not loving me. At least you're not loving me the way that I demand that you love me. You're not loving me the way I want you to. I want to have the joy of intimate fellowship with people, but you aren't interested in meeting my needs. I want the warmth of a relationship that's marked by, by affection, by compassion. But you're cold and hard. I want all of those things, but you're not giving them to me. So I'm right. I'm right to be cold towards you. I'm right to be discouraged and hurt. I'm right to feel alienated and put out. And of course, I am right then to be nasty towards you because you won't give me what I want. Of course, of course I'm going to be nasty towards you. You don't love me the way that I demand that you love me. Now, think about that. (laughs) Because it's really kind of funny. It's very ironic. The person who demands encouragement and compassion and fellowship and love and warmth always becomes discouraging and cold and hateful and distant. Why? Because you aren't getting what you want. So you deny for others what you demand for yourself. What kills relationships in this church or in your home is the attitude that I'm not getting what I want and I want what I'm not getting. And when you're controlled by that stuff, when you, when you want warmth so much that you become cold when you don't get it, when you want love so much that you become hateful when you don't get it, when you want fellowship so much that you withdraw when you don't get it, what's going on? Obviously, you want those things too much. And your desires for those good things have become your God. The God that you obey. The God that you slavishly obey. By lashing out and withdrawing and nurturing your bitterness and nurturing your spite. All in the name of getting love. (laughs) And you become poison. You cut yourself off from the one thing that you think you have to have the most. Because who's going to love you? So what do we do? How do we kill this root of division and strife and and nurture the root of genuine, godly, Christian relationships? The answer is in verse 1. The part that I skipped over. Look at verse 1. Philippians 2. He begins it with this. 
He says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. Does the word sound familiar? The things that you want so much that make you cold and hateful and angry and bitter when you don't get them? These if statements could be translated as sense statements, really. Since there is encouragement in Christ, there's no doubt about it. He's not wondering. (laughs) He's not asking the question. Since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is consolation of love, since there is fellowship of the Spirit, since there is affection and compassion, then, since all of that is true, then live like this. Obey these commands. These are realities. We actually do possess these things in Christ. We actually do have encouragement and consolation of love and fellowship of the Spirit and affection and compassion. If you are in Christ, you have all of these things in Christ. If you're in Christ, if you've been united with Jesus Christ by faith, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ alone to save you from your sin, then you already have all of these things. All of the things that you want from me and from your wife and from your husband, you already have. All of those things that you want that you aren't getting, the encouragement, the consolation of love, the fellowship, the affection, the compassion, you already have them. All of these things are yours now. They're already yours. You don't have to live life grubbing and scratching and clawing away at the people around you for your fulfillment and your satisfaction to get these things that you think you need. That is what every non-Christian relationship is like automatically. It's two empty people trying to fill themselves by feeding off of one another like vultures, constantly pecking away at each other, trying to get their fill from one another, tearing each other to shreds. So a a lot of the relationships are like here, isn't it? At home when no one's looking, But God says that you don't need anything else. If you are a Christian, you are full. If you are a Christian, you are complete. If you would fill your heart with the reality that you already have all of the encouragement that you could ever need in Christ, that you already have all of the love you could ever need in Christ, that you have all the fellowship you could ever need in Christ, that you have all of the affection you could ever need in Christ, if you have all of the compassion that you could ever need in Christ, if you could fill your heart, if you could actually believe that that is really true and feel it and experience it, then you wouldn't have to live your life scratching and clawing and grabbing it from the people around you. When all of us walked away from the table on Christmas Day, whatever you did, You walked away from the table having eaten. You weren't worried about where your next meal was going to come from. You weren't worried about raiding the refrigerator. You weren't worried about stuffing your face with Twinkies. You were full. You were full. And you can live in peace. You could live with sinners like me. You could live with your husband. You could live with your wife. 
You could live with your mom and your dad. You can live with all kinds of people who are always going to get it wrong, who are always going to mess it up, who are always not going to give you the things that you think you need, who are always going to mess it up and step on your toes and offend you and be nasty to you. You can live in peace with them because... You don't need what they have. You already have it. And you could still be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, well, you know, that's all well and good. Of course, yeah, I believe that Jesus is all that stuff to me. Yeah, 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 I know, I know, I know that. I've heard that before. I've read this passage, of course. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, right. But I'm still ticked off at my husband for not giving me what I want. I don't want all this theoretical, religious-sounding, pie-in-the-sky, by-and-by stuff about Jesus meeting all my longings. Yeah, I know that that's going to happen when I go to heaven. Yeah, I know. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I must have a husband now who gives me what I want. I must have a wife now who gives me what I want. Listen to me. If you can't see the connection between what God is commanding you to do here, God is commanding you to do things here that you must do. And if you can't see the connection between what God is commanding you to do here and the truth of who you are and what you have in Jesus Christ, if you can't see how the riches and and the fullness of relationship with Jesus makes you able to have good relationships with the people around you, even when they blow it, if, if none of that makes any sense to you because you've never really even tasted what it means to have fellowship with Christ or to know His love for you or to have to, to sense the, the presence, the compassion of the Spirit of God in you, if none of that makes sense, and if you keep on insisting that you have to have something that you can see and touch before you will obey God, give me a husband who loves me, then I'll obey God. Give me a wife who respects me, then I'll obey God. If that's you, then don't talk about having faith in Jesus. You're not interested in faith in Jesus. You're interested in something that you can see. Don't fool yourself. You can play lip service all you want to trusting Jesus, to loving Jesus, to believing in in Jesus. But if that trust, so-called, and that love and that belief is all just theoretical up here, and if it leaves you empty and scratching and clawing to get what you think you need, you had better reconsider the reality of your faith. It's not Jesus who's coming up short. It's not Jesus who's defective. It's us. It's not that faith doesn't do these things. It's that you need faith. You need real faith. What you need is to see Jesus and to trust Him and to love Him 
and to find in him everything that you need. It's exactly where Paul goes next, isn't it? Look at Philippians 2 again. Look at verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. What's he doing? He's told us what we have. Encouragement in Christ, fellowship of his love, compassion, affection. You have all this stuff, and because you have it, you can live with one another in unity of mind and oneness of spirit, pursuing the same goal, maintaining love, thinking of others better than yourselves, doing nothing out of selfishness and and vain conceit, laying down your lives for one another. You've got all of that. Now, what's he do? He says, now let me show you what I mean by that. Let me show you. What I'm talking about is what Jesus did. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Think about that. He did not regard equality with God something to be cling to. He existed in the very form of God. He is God. Equality with God is his the highest place in the universe, but he didn't regard that equality with God as something to be grasped and held onto and hoarded for himself. Instead, it says that he, he emptied himself. He laid it aside. He laid aside his glory. He is still God, but he lays aside the glory and the position, the privilege, and he takes the form of a bondservant and is made in the likeness of men. This glorious God who made man out of dust, became a man himself. The king of heaven becomes a slave. The one who is rich becomes poor for your sake. And what did he do? It says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. It's backwards, isn't it? Usually, obedience leads to what? Life. He becomes obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. He gave himself up to the shameful mocking of the crowds, to the beatings, to the public nakedness, to the shame, to the excruciating pain of the cross. He did all of that because he was humble and he did all of that because he was full. He didn't need our respect to be okay. He didn't need our love. He didn't need our friendship. He didn't come as an empty man who was just longing to have friends. That's not Jesus Christ. He came as the one who had everything that he could ever need. He came as God. He came as the one who was full He had everything that he needed, so he was able to lay everything down. That's the point. Able to lay everything down for people who hated him and abused him and denied him and ran from him and killed him. Able to lay everything down for you. So what are you like? You are a selfish sinner. who always has to have your own way, aren't you? I am. 
who lives as if the world revolves around you. Jesus Christ, the one that does have the world revolve around him. Really. Laid it aside for you. What more could you ever need? What more could you ever want? What are you waiting for before you will actually come to the place where you take these commands of God seriously? You're waiting for someone else to get it right first? You're waiting for your husband or your wife to get it right first? You're waiting for there to be a world in which you are not sinned against? Where people don't do bad things to you, to your children? And then you'll be okay? And then you'll be able to obey God? Is that what you think? Take hold of this. Sink your teeth into Christ, not into your wife. Sink your teeth into Christ. And if you do, you will find satisfaction. You will find encouragement and consolation of love and fellowship of the Spirit and affection and compassion. These things are yours. And as a result, you will find yourself in relationships that are rich and sweet and Christian. Let's pray together.